0: Hello everybody and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm very pleased to say we have Jerry Mueller on the show and we'll be talking about his new book, Capitalism and the Jews. Yes, you heard me right, Capitalism and the Jews. Just let that sink in for a moment. Capitalism, that's controversial. I used to live in Washington, D.C., and people used to tear up Starbucks and throw stones at the World Bank. All over capitalism. Jews are obviously controversial. I don't need to remind you of that. But Jews and capitalism, that's kind of disaster waiting to happen, or at least you'd think. So when I saw the title of this book, I said, you know, I have to find out what's going on with that. And so I contacted Jerry and said, I'd like to interview you. And he said, yes, I'd like to be interviewed. I also read the book, and I can tell you it's a terrific book. It really is wonderful. Jerry pulls no punches, but he also explains things that you think you know, but you don't really know. The book is very revealing in that way in taking on this really quite controversial topic. It's really a model of the kind of meditative, intelligent, insightful collection of historical essays on a controversial topic that I would like to see many more historians write. So let me shut up, and without further ado, here's the interview. Hi, Jerry. Hello, Marshall. How are you today? So far, so good. Yeah, you just got back from a long trip, didn't you?
1: Yes, indeed. I was uh, in Europe at a couple of, in Israel and Europe at a couple of academic conferences. Uh
0: I should tell our listeners that we uh, are really fortunate to have Jerry Mueller on the show today, and we'll be talking about his uh, fascinating new book, Capitalism and the Jews. I I have, as you know, if you listen to the show regularly, I read these books. And this one, I I'm not quite sure what. It's just a lovely book. It, it is lovely in so many ways. It was such a pleasure to read. It is it is brief. It is pithy. It takes on a very significant topic, and it does so in a, a sensitive way. Doesn't pull any punches, but it doesn't fall into the kind of cliched thing that you might think out of a book called Capitalism and the Jews. The essays are. Really, kind of meditations, historical meditations, and it's written, it's written in really wonderful style. It's a, it's the kind of book which I wish more historians would write. Uh, you know, I, I don't think uh, you know it, it is it is footnoted, but it is not buried in footnotes. You know, the references aren't are are are, are appropriate, but not obscure. Um, these really There really are essays. Are you blushing over there, Jerry? I'm gonna <laughs> uh, keep going. I'll work know, on it. Okay, but I really want to. I really want to encourage people to to go by this book, because it's a, it, it will really change the way you think about a lot of things. Um, because you come, you know, it's funny, because you come to this topic with a lot of what you think of as knowledge. Many people have thought about this before, because it's a very controversial thing. But it was very enlightening for me, as somebody who studied this stuff their whole lives, to to read this book, because there are just significant little insights in it that I just didn't really ever i just had had never considered myself, so anyway, congratulations on the book. why don't you uh begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure, I was born in Niagara Falls, Ontario, and that's where I grew up for the first eighteen years of my life. Uh, I was eager to leave Niagara Falls, Ontario <laughs> and uh subsequently uh studied in uh the United States and uh at Brandeis and uh, and later at uh, Columbia University and in between I did a junior year at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've had a long-standing interest uh, in modern Jewish history, uh, although my my main area of expertise has been modern European intellectual history. And uh, i After receiving my Ph.D. at Columbia in 1984, I came to the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., where I've been ever since. And indeed, for my sins, I'm now chair of the department. (laughs) uh, And, uh, well, that's enough to start with, I think. Yeah, no, that's
0: absolutely fine. Yeah, how did you come to write... This book, I imagine there's an interesting story here. It's a, I should tell people who don't know, and I can't imagine there is anybody who doesn't who listens to this show, that just the fact of titling a book Capitalism and the Jews is a very brave thing to do. It's either brave or stupid. In this case, it's brave. Uh, but it, uh, you know, I, it's quite a title and topic. How did, how did you come to write it?
1: Well, it brings together a number of interests that uh, I've had going back a very long way. Uh, i my main field as a graduate student was modern European history, but my minor field uh at, at first at brandeis and then at columbia was uh was modern jewish history and uh, i 've written a number of books having to do with uh m- mostly having to do with modern European intellectual history and uh Many of those, some of those books at least, had to do with how modern European intellectuals thought about capitalism. Uh, that, it, the salience of that issue first occurred to me when I was working on my doctoral dissertation. That became my first book called The Other God That Failed, Hans Freier and the Deradicalization of German Conservatism. Hans Freier was a right-wing German intellectual from the 1920s through the 1960s, and uh, he, he was one of his interests Uh, going back to his first book had to do with the way in which European thinkers thought about capitalism, which he rightly saw as a central theme in modern European thought. And uh, as I was writing that, I was preparing for my comps in modern European history, and I noticed that many of the intellectuals that I read from the 18th century to the present saw the development of the market and of commerce and the centrality of capitalism as indeed a, a central issue that they had to address, even thinkers who we don't typically think of as being concerned with such issues, like Hegel, for example, who, for whom it was actually quite central in his conception of the modern world. Uh, and uh, so uh, I kept thinking about that issue and working on it, and then in 2002, I After having done a couple of other books in the interim I published a big book with Knopf called The Mind and the Market Capitalism in Modern European Thought which had to do with how modern European intellectuals from uh, Voltaire in the 18th century through Marcuse and Hayek in the 20th century thought about capitalism and how it worked and what its moral and political and cultural ramifications were. And in the course of doing that book Uh, I was struck by the fact that for so many modern European intellectuals, how they thought about capitalism was often linked to how they thought about Jews. And the general propensity was that uh, those who tended to be in favor of capitalism in one way or another mm, tended to have good things to say about the Jews. And those who tended to be uh, fundamentally antipathetic to capitalism tended to be Uh, anti-Jewish in one way or another as well. So that was a theme that was a a recurrent but not a constant theme in that book, The Mind and the Market, but one that I came back to. Another uh, ongoing interest of mine has been uh, the radicalization and de-radicalization of modern intellectuals. Uh, I was interested in the phenomenon uh, first on the left when I was thinking of a doctoral dissertation topic i ended up writing about it on the political right uh but the topic uh interested me and uh in the late 1980s i wrote a long integrative essay on uh Jews and communism uh, called, uh the sort of dialectic of disaster there that i'll be happy to talk about later mm-hmm. and uh so and then after i finished the, uh, the mind and the market. Uh, as frequently happens, people invite one to speak at various uh, academic conferences in ways that get you to stretch or rethink uh, or expand upon the work you've already done. And a number of those were at conferences that had the primarily uh, Jewish focus. So mm-hmm. I ended up writing a number of other essays that had to do with uh, with Jews and capitalism from from a variety of perspectives, from the way in which modern European intellectuals, from from the question of how the way in which European intellectuals and even European political movements thought about capitalism and how that was often related to how they thought about the Jews, to the actual uh, Jewish reactions to capitalism, both in terms of how they did under it and how they reacted intellectually and politically to the interconnection between Nationalism and uh, the uh, the rise of capitalism and the rise of nationalism—that's the topic of nationalism and, above all, ethno-nationalism—is one that's come to interest me in the last few years. Uh, About two years ago, I published a long article in Foreign Affairs called "Us and Them: The Enduring Power of Ethnic Nationalism," which is a kind of history of 20th-century. Uh, Europe told in terms of the disaggregation of peoples, that is to say uh, the extent to which 20th century European history can be seen as the Triumph of the nationalist mm-hmm. idea that each each nation should be made up of one people, and each people should have its own nation. And mm-hmm. in in the process of working on nationalism, I got more and more interested in a thinker who had I'd already been attracted to, um, Ernst Gellner. Mm-hmm. and uh, all that led to uh, another essay on uh, on capitalism and nationalism and, this, and the link between the two and their significance for understanding modern Jewish history. Mm-hmm. And then I, then finally I decided to. Uh, Once I decided to put these together into a collection, uh, I revisited that issue of Jews and communism, about whom uh, a good deal of additional material had come out after the fall of communism, and so I I revised that essay, too, in light of the... uh, in light of the new literature. So then the question arose what to call this, and um, (laughs) Capitalism and the Jews seemed like the right title because that's indeed uh, what it was about. And one of the points of the book is that Uh, There are numerous perspectives uh, and vantage points from which one should uh, explore this issue of capitalism and the Jews, Uh, and uh, that's what I've tried to do in the book. I didn't mean to be either brave or provocative in calling the book Capitalism and the Jews, although I know it's been understood that way by some, Uh, and that's in part because, of course, uh, there were many... Anti-Semitic movements uh, and anti-capitalist movements mm-hmm. uh, that saw this association between capitalism and the Jews as uh, intrinsically pernicious. But of course, one needn't see it that way. And uh, I think we're at the point uh, historically where one can move beyond uh, apologetics to trying to deal with the subject uh, in a in an objective and and rational way. Uh, I know that there are. There are some Jews who regard the title as intrinsically (laughs) provocative uh, because they think that calling attention to disproportionate Jewish achievement uh, under capitalism will tend to fuel anti-Semitism. But uh, I think anti-Semites are... Uh, very resourceful uh, in finding fuel for their existing views, and uh, they don't need my book to do it. Well, I was thinking—you know—I was
0: inspired by your book and thinking about my own tradition. I was considering pitching a book called "Bad Food and Lutheranism," because <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> <'cause> we uh-huh. <laughs> we a really a lot of really bad food. I don't know what it, I don't know what it is about Lutheranism, but it's just not 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 very tasty. But anyway, it, I I do consider it a kind of a brave thing to to have done. But you know, you you uh, do a Marvelous example of disarming all of your potential critics. We'll talk about that in a second. Let's actually move into a discussion of the book. And the very first thing, there's a lot of myth-busting in this book. Uh, It's a very cool-headed myth-busting. You don't actually call very many people out. I would have had more of a tendency to do that. But uh, you're very modest in that way. But one of the first myths – it's not exactly a myth. Uh, It's really more of a specification of a generality uh, that is very useful in this context. And that is that the Jews, uh, while they are a – Diaspora merchant community Like let's say the Armenians um, Mm -hmm. They're a little bit different In a very culturally specific way And in a very significant way Why don't you
1: talk about that Yes, You know one of our tasks As historians Is to uh, engage In comparison Uh, And comparison is useful Both to uh, show What's common in certain situations But also to show uh, What's Either unique or at least different and specific, and his, and in recent years, historians and other social scientists uh, writing about the Jews have used this term, uh, a diasporic um, merchant minority, uh, that is to say, uh, a minority living uh, outside the borders, or in good part outside the borders of its of its own country, and by virtue of that fact. Uh, occupying particular economic niches often having to do with exchange between uh, between locals and the larger world and often engaged in one form or another of, of commerce and finance. And this is genuinely uh, useful in terms of understanding the role of the Jews from the medieval period uh, up through the 20th century. Uh, and it does provide... Useful comparisons with groups like the Armenians or or the Greeks or in or in the uh, in the 20th century actually uh, overseas Chinese and so on, uh, and there are some historians who've taken that and made it their central theme. One thinks, for example, of. Uh, of a a stimulating but flawed book that came out a few years ago by uh, Yuri Sleskin called The Jewish Century that just focused on that focused very much on on that category Uh, but the differences but there are really important differences between the Jews and these other groups that um, make their situation and their significance quite different and there's two main ones first of all unlike the other groups that we've mentioned The Jews had a specific place uh, in the theology of Christian Europe that was one of the prerequisites for them becoming a merchant minority, and that was to have all sorts of consequences. That is to say, Jews were, for most of the history of of Christian Europe, uh, up to the early modern period at least, uh, the only really tolerated minority Mm -hmm. uh, in Europe. Uh, They were tolerated because they had a special place in the Christian uh, scheme of salvation, but they were stigmatized uh, for their purported blindness in not having recognized Jesus as the Christ when he appeared, and this notion that the Jews were Uh, uh, stiff-necked and uh, morally blinded in one way or another uh, was an important part of the way in which Christians in the medieval period uh, thought about the Jews. And the fact that uh, Jews were, and that fed into One of the most salient niches the Jews came to occupy uh, in uh, in medieval European history and then in early modern history, and that is as uh, the lenders of money. It's not that most Jews were involved in this, but uh, some were, and they were and uh, that gets us to the whole connection between uh Jews and usury and thinking about money in general which perhaps we can come back to in a moment but in any case there the fact that they were this stigmatized minority uh permitted in Christianity but stigmatized uh is an imp- and quite central to the Christian theme of salvation uh, distinguishes them from other merchant minorities, diasporic merchant minorities. And the other huge difference, of course, which becomes more significant with the rise of ethnic nationalism in the modern period, is that unlike these other diasporic merchant minorities, they had no homeland in which they formed a uh, uh, a demographic mature- majority or over which they exercised political hegemony. And that made them particularly exposed uh, for a variety of reasons that I suppose we can come to. So in that sense, the, the category of diasporic merchant minority is really important for understanding the Jews, but to take it as the sole category makes us overlook a lot of what was most significant about their situation.
0: Yeah, I mean, I th- I think that's exactly right. And, and I thought it was a terrific point that the, the, the Jews from a Christian perspective At least in the early modern period And that's my period They were really neither fish nor fowl People didn't really know what to make of them They, they were allowed, usually by royal edict of some sort To mm-hmm. uh, live in various places And do various things mm-hmm. um, And uh, while they weren't Christians They weren't, let's say, Muslims who clearly were outside the community, and so people thought a lot about it, you know, and I mentioned Luther earlier, I mean he thought a lot about the Jews uh, precisely, I think for this reason because he didn 't know wh- where to put them or what to do with them. They were a good example of people that were kind of on the wrong track but didn 't go far enough, whereas the Muslims were just on the wrong track that was just they were, they were done um, and, and I think this this uh, you know the, in every the, the jews it 's funny because I was talking last week with somebody I interviewed about uh, Christian writings about Jews there was, there was still quite a bit of Christian writing about Jews In early modern Russia But there were no Jews mm-hmm. They were not allowed in early modern Russia right. So, you know, it's like they were there But they weren't there Mm-hmm. You know, and, and they really wrote a lot about them. It's kind of an interesting thing. Um, so I, I think you're absolutely right to point that out. They have a really special place in in the Western Christian tradition. Uh, it makes them very different from all the other diasporic communities that we we talk about. And this will become significant later in the story. But why don't we, as you suggested, turn to the notion of usury? And here you have some fascinating things. First, talk about uh, what Jews were allowed to do that Christians were not, and how this became associated with Judaism.
1: Yes. <laughs> The, the, w- one of the themes that I try to bring out in the book um, is how central this concept of usury and the penumbra of uh, concepts and images around it was to Western thinking about the Jews and to Western thinking about uh the making of money. Uh, It's it's a term that uh, that we nowadays associate usury with the notion of charging high rates of interest. But of course, traditionally in the the Catholic tradition and in some Protestant traditions as well after the Reformation, but above all in the Catholic uh, tradition, uh, usury was uh, a sin that, that meant lending money at, in, at any interest whatsoever. And that had two roots. So one was a biblical root uh, in the Hebrew Bible in a couple of places. Uh, Jews are forbidden to lend money to their brothers uh, at interest. And then what became particularly significant for the way in which Catholic thinkers thought about this issue uh, was the rediscovery and reappropriation of of Aristotle in the High Middle Ages, Uh, because Aristotle's view of usury is as follows, that that usury is uh, fundamentally unnatural, Uh, that is to say that money can't produce Money. That the notion that the fact that if it can, then you're engaged in some kind of a of a act against nature and an act that is uh, intrinsically uh, immoral. I mean, Aristotle was was pretty fuzzy about why people who engage in commerce should get any legitimate profit from it, but he thought that this was particularly the case uh, in regard to the lending of money of interest. So, uh, a medieval Christian thinkers. uh, combine the biblical prohibition of Jews lending money at interest to their brothers with this Aristotelian natural law understanding so that uh, for them usury becomes, the, again, the lending of money at any interest whatsoever, uh, becomes a sin. And then, but this comes at a time in the the high middle ages when the commercial economy of Europe is expanding when you have some agricultural surpluses leading to greater urbanization and to get those agricultural surpluses to the towns uh, you need people to engage in commerce and when you have commerce you almost always need uh, the lending of money so you have an increased need You have an increased economic need for the lending of money at a time when theologically it's being increasingly uh, stigmatized. And the solution that the Catholic Church came up with was that this activity, which was prohibited to Christians because it was sinful, uh, should be. Uh, permitted to Jews because the, the function was necessary, uh, the Jews in any case were condemned because of their uh, rejection of Christ, and therefore usury ought to be permitted to the Jews and only to them. Well, in fact, that's... Uh, That's not entirely what happens. Other people uh, engage in lending money, but uh, they uh, they try to remain under the uh, radar, as it were. Uh, But uh, but Jews are given this uh, niche, as it were, of lending money at interest, but that means that you have this theologically stigmatized minority, again, stigmatized for their kind of blindness, Uh, being connected with this activity of lending money in ways which continue to influence uh, well up into the modern period the way in which uh, many thinkers who were Christian or post-Christians or even anti-Christians in the West, uh, like Voltaire, but um, continue to influence the way in which they thought about The lending of money at interest, that this was something that only people outside of the community of shared moral values would do, and that a society in which uh, the lending of money at interest was significant was one that must have lost its moral bearings. And there is a very thin line almost an invisible line between the lending of money at interest and commerce that is making a gain through mm-hmm. through buying and selling. And so often enough, the stigmatization of usury as fundamentally unproductive or parasitic is extended to commercial activity as such by thinkers who are antipathetic to commercial activity uh, or to capitalism uh, of which I think the most uh, dramatic case is Marxism and one of the things I try to point out in that in my first long essay there called The The Long Shadow of Usury is the extent to which the sort of deep fundamental premises of Marxism uh, that is to say of Marx's own thought are very much in line with this traditional condemnation of usury as, uh, as fundamentally unproductive and parasitic. And Marx and Engels take that notion and they extend it to capitalism as such. That is, the notion is, of course, that, that this is based on the labor theory of value that suggests that the only real source of economic value is labor. Labor understood in good part as physical labor. Uh, and that those who have, those who make money, from capital, that is to say, from money intended for investment, uh, do so by virtue of by being unproductive and by exploiting those who really do work. And so, this notion of the fundamental uh, parasitic nature of money making is transformed by Marx and Engels from the traditional language of usury to this, uh, to this new language of the critique of capital. But the mm-hmm. fundamental idea that those who make decisions about, th- those who have money and make decisions about how to use it and where to deploy it and so on, that they're actually not doing anything and that therefore if they earn money from that, it is Presumptively illegitimate that 's the fundamental sort of deep premise of Marxism as well mm-hmm. and then this condemnation of this aftermath of the condemnation of usury appears in all sorts of radical right wing political movements in uh, in Europe and to some to, to a lesser degree in the United States as well in the condemnation of um, of uh, what are seen as illegitimate Jewish ways of making money, often connected with uh, finance and commerce as, to what are, as opposed to purportedly more real productive ways associated with either agriculture or engineering. Mm-hmm. So the, the theme has a very long aftermath in modern European history, and not just in modern European history. If you, if you read some of... Um, Osama bin Laden's fatwas, as, yeah. as I have, and as I quote, uh, that he condemns uh, the West for uh, for uh, engaging, for allowing people to engage in usury, and above all, uh, for the, for allowing the Jews to engage in that activity.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's an interesting moment. I, I didn't realize this when I was uh, before I read the book, but. Uh, There was kind of a semantic collapse of these two categories, that is lending money and interest or commercial activity and Judaism such that even, you know, in the 18th or 19th century that they were referred to as Jewish, that that Mm -hmm. they were the same things. Yes, and You know, a little bit like we think of Kleenex and tissue, you know, it's, it's really, it becomes a brand name for that kind of activity that these categories are collapsed in a really weird way. And one thing I didn't realize is, that I, you know, I, I guess I look at the, the so-called Jewish problem through the lens of a kind of late 19th, early 20th century um, nationalism. And that was the problem of Jews living among us. But as you point out, in the 18th and early 19th century, when Marx was sort of coming up, if we can say so, the Jewish problem was really about usury. That was a kind of activity.
1: Yes, and indeed the the term um, Judentum in German, uh, much like the term Jewing in 19th century English, uh, was a word that covered all sorts of commercial activity that was seen as... Um, morally dubious, mm-hmm. and uh, it's in, indeed in terms in, in that in those sorts of terms that Marx discusses the issue in his uh, in his famous early essay uh, on the Jewish question. Yeah, that, exactly. That doing is uh, is uh, engaging in commerce, which is again presumptively um, morally worthy of our disdain.
0: Yeah, there's a there's an interesting moment here and I wonder if you could speculate on it because I um, I. I'm always uh, astounded uh, over the degree to which this notion that productive labor involves muscles and unproductive labor involves your head Mm -hmm. persists. I mean, I I always perform this exercise with my undergraduates. I ask them what they think about their landlords. And almost to a person, they say that they are, uh, you know, rentiers, that they are just sort of blood-sucking you know, sit at home and drink beer while they take my money and they don't do anything. They always right. have this notion. And actually, I own a rental property, and I'm telling you what, that ain't true. No, <laughs> sure, uh-huh. I, I own a rental property, and I wish I didn't. <laughs> so, 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 yeah. But these these notions really persist. They really. I, and I think it's kind of a sort of you know the, the analogy that comes to mind is it's a little bit like calculus or higher math. You kind of get it or you kind of don't. Mm-hmm. You either understand that. You know the there's an efficient way to distribute capital, and we need people to think about that mm-hmm. or you don't understand that um i think
1: I think it's one of the deepest and most widespread sentiments uh in world history, especially because after all, as we know, most people at most times and places were peasants uh and peasants they they were either peasants or they were artisans. In both those cases, working with your body in a way that led you to sweat uh, was the major part of your economic activity. And for many of those people, understanding that mental activity could be itself at least as productive that is to say, making decisions about uh, you know where to invest capital, about what was a good risk and what wasn't, about what was efficient in terms of investment and what wasn't. Th- those were sorts of processes that they didn't typically engage in, and they couldn't really understand why a merchant who... You know, takes takes a thing from somewhere and doesn't transform it and sells it for more money. Why should why should he really be entitled to something? Mm-hmm. Not to speak of someone engaging in an even less tangible activity uh, of uh, of lending money at interest. <laughs> and uh, so, I, I think that that is a kind of what's so interesting to me about that is that it's a prejudice found not only among. Uh, as I say, peasants and often um, manual workers of various sorts, but that you find the same prejudice in Aristotle yeah. and uh, and then in so many later intellectuals. So the fact that your uh, students, uh, even in the 21st century, uh, don't see it uh, is really is really very telling.
0: Well, you kind of you kind of see it also in congressmen who are grilling Ben Bernanke. They, mm-hmm. they really, you know, I mean, the the tendency to make uh, to make the argument that these bankers don't do anything. You know, even when they don't perform very well and they didn't. But mm-hmm. the idea that they don't do anything, that mm-hmm. – <laughs> I, I don't know. These people should spend a – I don't know. I have friends who are investment bankers and basically they have mm-hmm. no lives. <laughs> they mm-hmm. work all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they work harder than anybody I know. Um, sure, yeah. they get paid a lot, but they don't enjoy any of that money. I'm telling you what. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, this tendency to want to think that they that, that somehow they don't really do anything and they just sit and – and damn, parasitic is the right metaphor. Yeah, it, it's a – it really is a – it's a – it's it's a mental habit that is hard to break. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it really, I, I agree with you completely. Well, let's let's go on um, to uh, the uh, the next essay, which is about the um, Jewish response to capitalism. And I didn't know that Milton Friedman had written this essay, but why don't you talk a little bit about the essay and your analysis of it?
1: Sure. In About 1972, Milton Friedman, the distinguished uh, economist and uh, libertarian thinker, gave a talk to uh, an international libertarian society, the Mont Pelerin Society, which about a decade later after having reworked it a couple of times, he published uh, under the title uh, Capitalism and the Jews, and there he suggested two things, that... Capitalism had been very good for the Jews. That is to say that when, uh, when Jews had been offered a modicum of uh, equality of legal rights, allowing them to engage in a competitive, uh, more or less free market economy, they had tended to do disproportionately well. And he had his own um, argument uh partially convincing partially not for why that was the case, including the notion that prejudice that it, when you really when you have real competition uh, prejudice is expensive to the prejudiced person that is to say if you if you have a really competitive economy then if you decide to not engage the most uh competitive uh, uh, lawyer or doctor or or, um or supplier uh, you will end up uh, losing money to those who don't have that prejudice and therefore and the more a, an economy is monopolized the more people can engage in those prejudices and the freer it is the more expensive it is for them to engage in those prejudices and therefore uh, when there was freer competition uh, Jews against whom there was a lot of existing prejudice uh, tended to do tended to do better. but he, So that was the first half of his, of his talk, was that Jews tended to do disproportionately well under conditions of free competition. Uh, and for him, of course, this was an argument for free competition in general. And the other half of his argument was that despite the fact, or paradox, paradoxically, despite the fact that they had done well under capitalism, Jews tended to be anti-capitalist. Uh, and he cited a number of examples of Jewish participation in social movements and Jewish salience in communist movements and, of course, for for Friedman, with his very um, uh, libertarian propensities, uh, those who favored the welfare state were tantamount to socialists as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so his argument was that paradoxically, despite the fact that they had done disproportionately well under capitalism, Jews had tended to be anti-capitalist. So those were the premises that I took up uh, in my essay. Mm-hmm.
0: And so in answer to the first thesis, which is uh, uh, Jews tend to do better uh, under capitalism, that is when they are, as they would have said in the 19th century, emancipated. That's true, mm-hmm. isn't it? That you, and you give some explanations for that.
1: Yes, it is true uh and the the truth is that uh jews have done uh jews who were very poor um for the most part in 19th in 19th century Uh, Eastern Europe and Russia, which is where the bulk of them lived, and they were they were very poor because they had had this tremendous rate of demographic expansion in the 19th century, and they were living in an economy that was um, in those areas of the Russian Empire that were uh, not that uh, not growing very much economically, and they were confined there by by law. So Jews in the in much of the nineteenth century and into the twentieth, um, were were very poor, but as they moved westward, uh, into western and into central and western Europe and above all to the United States, uh, they did tend to do disproportionately well under conditions of legal equality and a and a uh competitive capitalist economy. What I point out is that uh what what Friedman has to say about uh about the fact that groups do better when uh, groups who against whom they are prejud- they're prejudices uh, do better under conditions of free competition, that depends in part on uh, the nature of those groups and the cultural baggage uh, that they bring with them. And the Jews, for a variety of reasons that I that I try to touch upon, um, had a culture by virtue of their historical experience as. Uh, middlemen of various sorts, they had a culture uh, that when they were allowed to engage in uh, free competitive activity tended to make them disproportionately successful. That Mm -hmm. is, They they had a certain for a couple of reasons. They had a certain know-how that was transmitted within families and in communities about how to engage in a commercial economy that when they were allowed to um, tended to lead to them doing well. And also they had a culture that was oriented towards uh, book learning, and that, although the books in question traditionally were uh, were, the, were books of the Talmud, uh, that propensity to regard book learning highly and to regard uh, study highly was transferred by many Jews from these Uh, religious texts to secular texts, and so when they were allowed to go to universities, uh, they did disproportionately well in the free professions, which are a very important part of modern capitalist societies. And so, so Friedman was right about the fact that Jews did disproportionately well, though he didn't bother to explain or explore why they did disproportionately well in a way that might not apply to every uh, stigmatized minority group, and then I deal with the issue of the uh, Jewish intellectual and political response to capitalism, uh, where I try to show that uh, the Jewish commitment to socialism that uh, that uh, Friedman so focused on was rather more fortuitous and less long-lived than he would have us believe. That is to say, in late 19th century uh, uh, Russia, under these conditions of tremendous poverty and so on, um, Jews were disproportionately uh... many jews there were attracted to socialism in part because capitalism didn't seem to be working very well uh... in part because socialism was untried and seemed like a better idea before anybody had actually put it into practice but also because the socialists at the time were the only mass movement in that part of the world uh... that stood for jewish uh... legal equality and many of them brought those propensities with them uh... the countries of the west to which they to which they emigrated in search of economic opportunity. Uh, But it didn't tend to last for more than uh, a couple of generations or tended to diminish from generation to generation. And indeed, in most of the countries of Central and Western Europe in the late 19th and early 20th century, and then increasingly in the United States as well, uh, Jews actually tended to support liberal parties, liberal in the European sense in terms of standing for Competitive capitalism, equality of opportunity, but also a certain um, laicism in which national identity was not defined by uh, by religious identity in the way that it was among many uh, Christian parties uh, in in Europe. So, uh, so the kind of so Jews tended to be liberal, not leftist, uh, and they did so in part on uh, in part on non-economic grounds. And then uh, I turn to the variety of Jewish intellectual responses uh, to capitalism, where I show that uh, well it's true that there were um, Jews who were highly critical of capitalism, and well, one of the most interesting phenomena is how many Jews, at least some Jewish thinkers, buy into this idea that we discussed earlier that commerce is fundamentally unproductive, and so the Jews ought to move out of commerce into artisanal work or into one or another form of farming. Uh, But I also show that there was a... There's a steady stream of Jewish thinkers from uh, from Luzzatto in the 17th century, through Moses Mendelssohn in the 18th century, uh, through all sorts of thinkers in the 20th century, uh, including actually Milton Friedman himself, who make arguments fundamentally uh, in favor of commerce. And one of the most interesting and overlooked ones is the argument made by by Moses Mendelssohn, who is the leading is a is an important figure in the uh, German Enlightenment. In the late 18th century, and a key figure in the uh, Jewish Enlightenment, the uh, the Haskalah, as it's known, mm-hmm. and. Uh, Mendelssohn, among other things, makes an explicit argument for the fact that this notion that only people who engage in labor that produces sweat are really productive. <laughs> he says, actually, that's not true. He says that often the, the banker or the investor who's sitting at his desk and, and engaged in pondering and contemplating and thinking uh, is often doing something that's more important in terms of overall economic productivity than the person that's sweating, even though you can't see the investor uh, moving his limbs. and uh, so then I deal in, in that chapter with uh, – these, with also with the, – both with the Jewish practical responses to capitalism and with the various intellectual intellectual and political responses to capitalism.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean I think one of the uh, terrific things about the book – and this is something when I point out to my undergraduates that can hardly believe – is that well, that there was a Jewish working class movement, which would seem to be kind of a contradiction in terms at least in their world or in our world because there is no what they consider Jewish working class um, right. However, in late 19th century Eastern Europe, there was a big Jewish working class and they had their own party, the Bund, uh mm-hmm. which which was uh, a, a socialist uh, a party a typical uh, among other working class socialist parties at the time, mm-hmm. but also that it was a, an a really a, an evanescent uh, um that it that it was just a moment uh in mm-hmm. which they found themselves in this impoverished condition and then they quickly once they either um, immigrated to the the new world, or were assimilated in some sense or, or were the um, beneficiaries of emancipation? How quickly they uh, sort of gave up on that and, and, and um, you know, sort of moved into the the professions that we associated with, and the Bund goes into decline well actually it 's closed by the communists but um, I yeah. thought that was a really it was a really good point because it shows that uh, you know it reminded me uh, i 'm sorry to go on but of a an interview that I did quite a while ago with a guy named, uh, you may be familiar with his work, Tony Michaels. Yes. Yeah, sure. yeah, he wrote this terrific book about uh, how, <laughs> I, wanted, I thought he should uh, have called the book How the Jews Got Socialism in America, but um, he shows that it was the Germans. Who mm-hmm. taught it to them <laughs> in, mm-hmm. in New York? <laughs> they didn't bring it with them, and, uh, and I mm-hmm. thought, you know, that that's exactly right because you know they got to New York and they were really poor, and there were these mm-hmm. other Germans around, and they, you know, the Jews look at these Germans, they're like, oh, these people are really smart. <laughs> Let's do what they do, and so that's how mm-hmm. they, you know, we when we have this notion in America of that, you know, the Jewish socialist and sort of radical type, and they brought Judaism from Europe, but that isn't in fact true at all, according to mm-hmm. Tony. So I thought it was a fascinating yeah. thing. Yeah,
1: yeah, I think Michael's argument is uh, is an important one, although I think he. I, I think he overstates it. Okay. Say I think there was some continuity between uh, Eastern European Jewish socialism and, and Yiddish-speaking socialists in the United States in the first few decades of the 20th century. I'll
0: let you guys fight that out. Um, okay. But I had no idea there was any sort of German connection at all, although I do know that the, that the uh – that the Jews that immigrated to the United States did hold the Germans in very high esteem at that time. That there was this sort of, um, I don't know, it's almost a patronage relationship that they thought the Germans really knew what was going on, and there was kind of a following uh, for the, these German socialists. But in any event, um, mm-hmm. uh, one of the uh, one of the the things that you go on to talk about um, is the generation of this idea that we have. I mean, I think it's still present today that somehow um, socialism and communism. Uh, were uh, led by Jews, that they were, and, and again, there's a sort of, uh, there's, a, there's a, a very harmful way to think about this, that is that it's a Jewish conspiracy, that's sort of out of the Nazi camp, but there's this other sort of more common association that the Jews were somehow attracted to socialism and communism, and you have some explanations of why that is and how the idea that uh, this more nefarious idea that somehow it was a conspiracy was generated. Why don't you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yes one of the things I find disconcerting, especially among younger journalists and so on reacting to the book, is that they don't uh really get the distinction between socialism and communism yeah, no, a, which true. is a very important yeah, one. True. Um because the socialists on the whole, of course, as as you know, were committed to uh to democracy yeah. uh and eventually went on to become a kind of uh, reformist an important reformist movement uh within capitalist societies. Uh whereas communists of course were Committed to one form or another of the dictatorship of the proletariat, which of course ended up meaning the dictatorship of the Communist Party over the proletariat and everyone else, uh, and uh, they had a rather, they had a very different orientation. So you do have lots of Jews in the late 19th, early 20th century being attracted to socialism, uh, but you have really on the whole a very small number who were attracted to communism uh both in Europe and uh and in the United States in the, in, in the United States it's a it's a fairly minor story uh except that so many prominent academics end up being uh the children of former communists, so-called red diaper babies, yeah. but that's a, that's a, a minor story in the American saga, but in much of Eastern and Central Europe it, it becomes very significant that although in fact only a tiny percentage of Jews are attracted to communism Jews end up uh, uh, both after the First World War and then again for reasons that I explain after the Second World War, emerging as very publicly salient actors in communist movements. And that's largely because uh, the the communist movements tended to have constituencies that were, uh, above all, working class. Uh, And the Jews who belonged tended to be more urban and more literate uh, than the mass of the uh, members of the communist movements, and so they often emerged into leadership positions in those movements. Uh, first, in first, uh, right after the First World War, in the Bolshevik Revolution, where you have, you know, very few Jewish, as a proportion of the Jewish population, you have very few Jews uh, who are pro-communist, uh, but. Uh, communists of Jewish origin are in um, a disproportionate number of leadership positions in the in the early years of the Soviet Union, and and you find that also in the uh, abortive communist revolutions after the First World War that occurred in Hungary uh, and in Bavaria. So in all of those cases, you have the emergence of this of of the myth of the Jewish Bolshevik, which starts with a certain small. Re- reality that there are prominent jewish bolsheviks and turns it into this myth that uh, all jews are bolsheviks and that bolshevism is somehow fundamentally jewish which of course is a line that becomes popular uh, on the radical right uh, not least for hitler and the national socialists and that in turn of course helps this notion of since since most people were uh, terrified of uh, a Bolshevist takeover, the association between Jews and Bolshevism ends up uh, reinforcing anti-Semitism in the interwar period. Mm -hmm. And then for a number of peculiar historical reasons that I try to explain, after the Second World War, Jews again emerge in... Uh, a small number of Jews emerge in salient positions in the new communist regimes in, in Eastern Europe, in Hungary, Poland, Czechos- and Czechoslovakia. Uh, and that in turn also leads to a uh, kind of dialectic of disaster where anti-communism and anti-Semitism again become associated.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have that great quote in there. I don't remember who it's by, but... It, 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 the, 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 the gist of it is that the Trotsky's make revolution, but the what was Trotsky's uh, name? I can or something. Uh, yes, Bronstein.
1: Uh,
0: Bronstein. Yeah, the Bronsteins pay for it. Yeah. Yes,
1: yeah, uh, that, that's attributed to Rabbi Jacob Mazza, who was indeed the uh, chief rabbi of uh, of Moscow at the time of the yeah. Russian Revolution.
0: Well, I was just, you know, the thing about Trotsky is though he realized that as well. I mean, there are many times in his life when he was. I don't know, his, his colleagues were trying to put him up as something, and mm-hmm. he said, you know, we really shouldn't do this because then it will become associated with Judaism because I'm Jewish and – I mean I'm nominally Jewish, uh, mm-hmm. and, and this will damage our cause. He was he was very aware of this. Yeah,
1: um, One finds that among some uh, later uh, – communists of Jewish origin, too, like Anna Pauker in Romania uh-huh. uh, after the Second World War, who, again, moves into these very salient positions, but tells her comrades, you know, I really shouldn't be doing this because it's going to work against our, that is, against the interests of us communists.
0: Uh-huh. Then you have, a, you have a really interesting point, and I hadn't really thought about this until I read it in your book, and that is that even after World War II, uh-huh. uh, th- 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 that there was, a, a, again, a kind of strong attraction... In this case, even I think even stronger than before the war between uh, Jews and the communist and socialist authorities. Maybe you could, or, or or communism and socialism. Maybe you could talk a little about that.
1: Yes, uh, that that applies to those countries like, uh, especially Poland and Hungary, uh, where the where during the Second World War uh, Jews had been. Um, highly persecuted uh, and where there was some persecu- where there was the danger of their persecution even after the war in Poland as you know uh, after the war there are a series of, uh, of uh, pogroms really uh, against those few Jews who were returning from concentration camps uh, or elsewhere and in Hungary the uh, indigenous Nazi movement. Uh, the Arrow Cross had played a leading role in the deportation and murder of uh, Hungarian Jewry in the final uh, years of the war. And in those places, in particular, uh, Jew- there are there are a number of young Jews who hadn't previously been communists and weren't particularly attracted to communist ideology, who uh, are recruited uh, to the, in this in these new. Uh, Soviet occupation regimes, uh, who are recruited to leading positions, uh, above all in the intelligence agencies, and that is because uh, th- there's a twofold reason. From the point of view of the of these young Jews themselves, they want to help the regime get the people who had been responsible for murdering the Jewish communities mm-hmm. uh, of their. Of their countries, Uh, and from the point of view of the of the Russian uh, occupation authorities and the communist governments they they set up, um, you know these were countries that had a strong and almost universal tradition of anti-communism. So there are very few people in the indigenous population that they that they the Soviet authorities feel that they can. Uh, rely upon to be uh, reliably Mm pro-communist and so on the one hand the authorities tend to recruit these people and these young people who again previously often hadn't had that much uh, allegiance to communism uh, join the regime uh, partially as a way of um, trying to bring to justice uh, these people who had uh, done their fellow Jews in and then you have this small group of what were called Jewish Muscovites that is to say, people who had been members, who had been members of the communist movement, leading members of the communist movement in the countries of Eastern Europe during the 1930s and during the Second World War, who spend much of the 30s and the early 40s uh, in the Soviet Union, and who have gone through the Stalinist crucible, so to speak, mm-hmm. and emerge as a uh, reliable communist that the Soviets then seek to use in the occupation regimes after 1945. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then this, of
0: course, uh, leads to another backlash: is
1: Oh, absolutely, because then the communist regime can again be portrayed as Jewish. And the Soviet, and what's so ironic and tragic is that these parties themselves then begin to make use of anti-Semitism, as as you have. You know, as these parties engage in the Stalinization of society, and that leads, of course, to tremendous negative reactions for quite understandable reasons. Uh, when the parties want to back off from that, they say in the early in uh, the early 50s, 52, 53, they say, oh, well, that, that's what the Jewish communists were doing. Now we're going to change our line and we're going to replace uh, those communists with, with real Poles or real Hungarians or what have you. So yes, in the end, the communist regimes themselves end up making use of... Of anti-Semitism in this regard.
0: Yeah, I want I want to uh, rush forward just a little bit, um, not mm-hmm. to give that topic short shrift, but uh, there are some very welcome words that you said uh, vis-à-vis um, in the last essay of the book vis-à-vis the uh, the invention, the so-called invention of nations, and the thought of Ernst Gellner. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about those two ideas. I'm not a tremendously big fan of the notion that somehow um, nations are a construct of the 19th and 20th century, but go ahead please
1: mm-hmm. Well that's the notion that Gellner is typically associated with, but I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's the most important part of his thought uh, from my point of view Uh, what's most important about Gellner's thought in understanding the rise of nationalism is the following argument that he makes. That for most of Europe, especially when you get away from Western Europe and you move towards Central and Eastern Europe, uh, and indeed for much of the surrounding area uh, in the 19th and early 20th century, you have not nation-states made up of of uh, ethnically homogenous groups, uh, but, you, but you have rather empires, uh, and that much of the world through most of history has been organized in empires, and that in empires, it's typical for different ethnic or religious or linguistic groups to occupy different economic strata, so it's typical for the uh, the military administrative elite to be of one ethnic group and speak one one language, uh, whereas the commercial classes are typically people of another ethnic group and who speak another language. And the peasants are often uh, different ethnically, uh, or almost always different ethnically from those commercial classes. And there may be different groups of peasants speaking different languages and with different ethnicities, all living together together in an empire. And that's fine because empires don't share the typically modern assumption of modern nationalism, namely that each state should be made up of one people and that each people should have its own state. And Galway's argument is that as, these, in the, as in the course of the 19th and early 20th century, as these empires try to uh, develop economically, that is to say, as they try to become capitalist societies, they try to create um, a certain kind of homogeneity, not least, they want to have a common language that everybody can speak so people can move around from one economic position uh, to another and create a more dynamic society, and that in turn creates all kinds of tensions between those who are part of the main language group and those who aren't. Uh, And and, uh, what language is spoken turns out to have uh, economic consequences and creates different economic interests. So there's a link, he says, between the attempt of these empires to become more Uh, capitalist societies and the rise of ethnic nationalism and as time goes on because Jews were the group that in many societies especially in in Eastern and to some degree in East Central Europe including for example Prague where he where uh, Gellner himself was born because Jews are often the most uh, commercially involved group by virtue of their background as you have the uh, Majority ethnic group, in this case Czechs, for example, uh, creating a country uh, uh, wanting to have a nation state of their own they, and becoming more, and aspiring to be uh, more and more middle class and engage in commerce and the professions and so on, it creates this economic competition between these previously non-commercial groups and the Jews and that creates an incentive to define the Jews as outside of the real national community and to try to find some way of getting rid of them mm-hmm. and that that's a you know it's a radical, a radically broad generalization but I think it's genuinely useful mm-hmm. in understanding the relationship between the, the, the uh, the spread of uh, capitalism and the rise of ethnic nationalism and the way in which it tends to be increasingly exclusionary of the Jews. And, and, and from the late 19th century, from about 1882 on, you have uh, Jewish thinkers increasingly recognizing this, and uh, some of them become uh, Zionists, like Leon Pinsker, uh, in Russia, or of course, later, Taylor later, Herzl um, in Vienna, uh, they say that, that, that uh, this enlightenment hope that the spread of capitalism and the spread of democracy is going to lead to greater acceptance of the Jews is just empirically not true. Mm-hmm. in a great deal of Europe. that mm-hmm. actually, it leads to the rise of more exclusionary forms of nationalism. And so, Jew- and so Jews will find themselves uh, politically powerless and increasingly excluded, and they had better find a place where uh, they are politically uh, capable of uh, practicing their own sovereignty, or else it's going to be disastrous.
0: I mean, I think that, you're, I think that Gellner's thesis and your thesis receive a, a certain amount of support from the American experience itself, where uh, people are free not to assimilate, but they all do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, uh, they inevitably do assimilate. You know, you, you know, these traditions last, languages last a couple of generations maybe, but then, mm-hmm. kind of in the interest of economic advance, everybody ends up speaking English and, uh, you know, being. We you know, you know, they go to church on Easter and and Christmas, or they go to high holy days services, or you know, really, there's a kind of an Americanization that goes on, but it's a it's passive in this instance and and uh, not active. But it, I think the curious thing is that they're absolutely free to continue their tradition, whatever it might be, but they almost never do. Um, and, and I think that really does support the, the thesis in a certain way. There's, a, there's one, um, before I ask you our final and traditional question, there's one other question that it's a little bit whimsical. I don't know if it's wrongheaded or not, but um, it got me thinking. The, the Max Weber uh, uh, famously wrote a book called uh, uh, The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. Uh, sh- shouldn't he have written a book called The Jewish Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism?
1: Well, that book was written by his uh, <laughs> colleague and counterpart Werner Zombard um who wrote a book called uh, the Jews and economic life uh and it was in many respects uh, wrong headed um as pointed out uh by a number of uh, Zumbart's critics but uh the person i think who got it right was a, a third colleague of theirs uh in many ways more interesting than both of them um Georg Zimmel uh who wrote about these things and, yeah. and he said and well Zumbart thinks that it's the Jewish religion per se plus some inborn racial qualities in the Jews that makes them good at capitalism, Uh, Zimmel says, no, it's not so much the Jewish religion, um, and it's certainly nothing racial or inborn. Uh, It's the previous historical experience of the Jews that comes about precisely because they were theologically, on the one hand, uh, marginalized mm-hmm. and, and moved into these commercial niche positions, so that as the as the general economy becomes more commercial, uh, they have the kind of background to do disproportionately well. So I think, you know, in some ways, Judaism was more uh, commercially oriented than, say, uh, Catholicism but on the whole that's a relatively minor factor I think in explaining the uh, disproportionate Jewish success under capitalism historical experience and changing conjunctures is more important mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I mean I think that's quite right I
0: hope people run out and read Zimmel I, I kind of doubt they will but <laughs> we, can, we can always hope uh, so anyway uh, we've taken up a lot of your time Jerry and I really appreciate it uh, it's been a fascinating conversation let me close uh, our interview with our traditional final question, and that is, uh, what are you working on now? What is your next project?
1: Hmm. Well, I'm working on two sorts of projects. Uh, One is uh, uh, I'm I'm trying to see whether there's a market for the kind of essays that I did in Capitalism and the Jews, that is to say essays that take uh, broad topics, Uh, integrate the historical knowledge and social scientific knowledge on them and write them and and, and are written up in a way that they're accessible to a larger audience. So uh, I'm trying to put together, I'm working on the one hand on a collection of essays on big themes in modern history from uh, the rise of uh, the, the interconnection between biblical criticism and religious criticism and political criticism in modern Europe. Uh, that's one essay. Another one has to do with the right with uh, ethno-nationalism. Another one has to do with the tensions between liberalism and. Uh, uh, between capitalism and democracy, and another of them uh, has to do with uh, with ethno, with uh, I'm sorry, with responses to fertility decline uh, as a big theme in late 19th and 20th century history. So that's one thing. It's to do these set of general accessible essays on big themes. And in addition to that, I'm doing uh, some very detailed uh, empirical research uh, on a life and times biography of a curious uh, and charismatic 20th century intellectual by the name of Jacob Taubus who moved between Central European, uh, German-speaking Central Europe and the United States uh, and Israel and served as something of a merchant of ideas between those contexts. And uh, uh, it's, called the, it's going to be called uh, the transgressive rabbi, the, the uh, <laughs> life and times of, of Jacob Talbis. But that's, that sounds, a, that's a very different
0: topic. Yeah, that sounds great, though. It sounds really good. Well, I mean, I, I really, I, I hope you'll be on the show when you, you finish uh, one or both of those. That would be really terrific. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, Jerry, let me thank you again for being on the show. It's been terrific to have you. My pleasure. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Jerry Mueller about his new book, Capitalism and the Jews, I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. Have a great week.